All right, so we're in 2 Chronicles 32, but I want to back up a little bit up to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. So the three chapters ahead of this one start outlining for us who Hezekiah was, how he came to power. So chapter 29 says that Hezekiah was one of the few kings to turn and actually follow the Lord with his whole heart. So it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. So Hezekiah was a good king. In a whole string of bad kings, he was one of the good ones. So he not only cleansed the temple of junk and garbage and worthless things, the temple which actually had its doors closed, um, but he brought back the Levites and the priests and he restored temple worship again at the temple. So he also did something um, that hadn't been done for a little bit. He led the people in celebrating the Passover the way that God required it. And he didn't just lead them to celebrate the Passover, but he led them to like really celebrate the Passover. So if you read those few chapters, 29 through 31, you'll see that there was great joy in Jerusalem, it says, because there had been nothing like this since the days of King Solomon. So if you go back to Solomon, that's 200 years earlier. So for 200 years, Jerusalem had not seen a party like this. So they celebrated for seven days, as it should be, but at the end of seven days, they were actually having such a good time, they decided to go party for another seven days, celebrating the Passover. Not to mention they had 7,000-odd sheep and some bulls and rams and other things to eat uh, that they had been sacrificing over that time. So, 14 days of gathering together to eat and drink and party, all while remembering what God had done for them in Egypt. Um, it sounds like a good time. I honestly wish I could have been there and seen what this was like. Um, it would have been great. So, when they finally wind down this party in Jerusalem, everyone starts to head home. The people have gathered from all over the place, come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now they're heading home. So on their way, what they actually do is they start destroying the Asherim, the altars throughout Judah, the high places, essentially all the things that had to do with worshiping God in a wrong way or worshiping false gods, worshiping something other than God. The people left the Passover celebration and they went and they destroyed all this stuff on their way home. So looking at these stories as we lead up to chapter 32, I think this story is important because it makes clear that joy in the Lord will make us want to get rid of pointless and worthless things in our life. So I want to ask this question, how transforming would it be for us to find joy in God like Hezekiah and Israel did? Not in like a think about it for a couple minutes while we walk to school or for a few minutes while we drive to work, but like in a let's lay aside all of our responsibilities, get together, party for 14 days, and celebrate what the Lord has done type of way. And I think even for me hearing that, you guys hearing that, you might think like, come on, man, like that's ridiculous. No one has time to actually do that. But I think you guys can hear what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, are you intentional and are you actually focused in your pursuit of God? Or is it just something that's casual to you that you kind of do when you have time and it can fit in with your schedule? So what I would very humbly say to you guys looking at this story is don't expect to experience something like they did. Where they have this experience where they go out and destroy the things that they had been doing in daily life, these worthless, pointless things, don't expect a, a, an experience like that if your time and energy is spent on everything but God. So I can't tell you how much I need my own advice when I say that, just knowing my own inconsistencies, but I believe God wants us, all of us in this room, all of his people in general, his church, to seek God together a lot more than we do right now. So, moving on from that, we're getting up to our passage. So, all these three chapters basically show us how Hezekiah He's done a great job in leading the people. Things in Judah seem to be going well after some kings who did not lead the people to do so well. So here's the question. How is God going to reward Hezekiah and the people for their newfound joy in him? What's he going to do? 
Well, we see the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he's going to turn his nation-destroying army towards Jerusalem, and he's going to try to overrun it. That's how God rewards him. So, with that, turn or tap your way in your Bible to 2 Chronicles 32. I'll give you a second for you guys to turn to that or pull it up on your phone or something. Um, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 in chapter 32. And we're going to read a few verses at a time, and then we're going to pause as we go through. So chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Why don't you guys read along with me? After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it, and outside it he built another wall, and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance, and he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So verse 1 stands out to me in this passage as we read through it. Following the faithfulness of Hezekiah and the people, this Passover celebration, all these things, so you don't get great blessing and prosperity for Israel. What you actually get is a huge challenge that's given to you. So this seems kind of counterintuitive to us, but really this is the same way that God works in our lives today. This is what he does. So faith in the Bible is repeatedly referred to as working like a metal refined in fire. You turn up the heat, you melt it down, you get to see what's actually contained inside of it, and when impurities rise to the top, you can take them out. So our faith is tested in really much of the same way. It's tested under circumstances to see what's really there, and in the process when anger or pride or doubt, when any of these kind of things surface, God has a way of using these times in our life to scoop these things out, to get rid of them. It's how metal is purified, and it's how we are made holy in our faith as well. So really, at the end of the day, we shouldn't be all that surprised to see a test following the faithfulness of Hezekiah in Israel. Now as we read on, we see that Hezekiah does two things when he hears Sennacherib is coming. First, he builds up the defenses, and second, he builds up the people. So first, with the defenses, he strategizes very practically. He says, let's cut off the water, take all the supplies away, so the invading army is really going to have a difficult time to last long in the land here. The other thing he does is he repairs the walls where they're weak or where they're broken down, and he actually builds some new walls as well. So Hezekiah does all he can to prepare for war, and when he's done all that he can to prepare for war, what does he do? He encourages the people. And he does it by turning their confidence not to the walls he's just built, not to the strategy that they have to fight them, but he turns their confidence to God. He says to them, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than there are with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So when we hear this, a few things might pop into your head. It might be reminiscent of Moses speaking to Joshua as they're about to enter the promised land. It might remind us even of last week of David as he commissioned Solomon to build the temple and to take the throne. 
So the phrase, be strong and courageous, keeps reappearing. And really, it's something that you need to hear when you have good reason to be totally and utterly terrified of what's in front of you. So to tell someone to be strong and courageous, though, without giving them a reason why, is pretty useless. Honestly, I kind of look at it like modern-day self-help. Imagine a conversation, something like this, being told, go for it. Just do it. Well, am I able to? Well, of course, you're special. Yeah, okay, okay. Just believe in yourself. Yeah. But why? Because you are the only you. Yeah, I am. Well, let's do this. And that's why eight out of 10 businesses fail in their first year, is encouragement just like that. <laughs> so I have nothing against positivity, but encouragement without a reason convinces people to do stuff they probably should not do. Now, Hezekiah doesn't leave his people with just nice words. He doesn't just say, you guys got this, when it seems like they really don't got this. He gives a reason. Sennacherib may have a massive army, and he's already captured tons of cities and villages, and he's taken captive 200,000-plus Israelites in other places. But he says, we have the living God on our side. Hezekiah does all he can to physically prepare for this war, but in the end, he encourages the people with the truth of who their God is. So now for you and me today, when you encourage people who are worried, scared, doubting, don't just say, I'll pray for you, brother, or that's hard, uh, let me know if you need anything, or uh, please don't just give them an empty, you know, get over it, you, you'll be okay, without giving them a reason, and please don't give them a fluffy self-help book, don't do that either. Point them to who God is, what he has done, and remind them that he has not changed who he is. Encourage people with scripture, testimonies from your own life maybe, or maybe even remind them of stories in their own life of how God has been faithful to them already in the past. Ground your encouragement of a hopeful outcome in the God who controls the outcomes. Don't let it be empty. So Hezekiah did not give empty encouragement, and neither should we when we're encouraging others. Now at this point, Hezekiah, he's doing pretty good. You know, he's nailed the two necessities for every great medieval-style war movie. He's got several scenes of preparing for heavy battle, and then he gives an epic speech to get the people prepared. He's doing great. So now they ride on to victory, right? Well, Senate Crib has other thoughts. I want you guys to read with me, starting in verse 9, and we're going to read a few more verses here. So after this, after Hezekiah encourages them, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the peoples of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst, when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, before one altar you shall worship, and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? Do you not know that what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore... Do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. 
how much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servant said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. So I think if we get anything from this passage, we should see that psychological warfare and propaganda are not 21st century inventions. Sennacherib's goal, <coughs> excuse me, Sennacherib's goal is not only to mock the God of Israel, but to get into the heads of the Israelites. In the 5th century BC, the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu, I think I said that right, said, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. So that's uh, 500 years before the time of Christ. So this type of strategy is nothing new. Get in their head, manipulate, convince them of a lie, let them destroy themselves, or at least influence them enough to produce the outcome that you want to get. So think for a minute, if you go back to Genesis in the garden, what was the strategy of the snake? Play a mind game. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he let Eve take it from there. A renowned philosopher once said, an idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious, and even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. And that was actually just Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Inception, but it's very fitting <laughs> for this morning. So, so let me ask you guys, do you think the fight for your mind is any different today? Do you think there are people, organizations, entities, governments, fill in the blank, who would like to influence you, persuade you, put thoughts and ideas in your head to make you complicit with their desired outcomes? People and powers you're maybe not even aware of persuading you in ways you're not aware of. Now, I know there's mental power in that question as well, and I don't ask it to make you a paranoid person who dives headlong into eight hours of conspiracy theories a day. Though I personally enjoy the occasional conspiracy theory, you should not do that. It's not my goal. But I do want you to see that there has been psychological warfare going on for millennia. The Bible tells Christians, tells believers, that our enemy is the most skilled psychological influencer of all time. He's earned the title, Father of Lies. Satan has had thousands of years to perfect his game. And really, it's not like he's needed any perfecting. He took out the first two people that came his way. So what hope do we have? Well, God has made us. He knows that narratives, questions, logic, stories are able to form our minds. They can shape our belief, conform our actions even. Many of us know we're told in Romans 12:2 to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How do we actually do that? Well, there's a lot of ways the Bible gives us that we can do that, but we're going to focus on one thing that he's given. We're going to look at salvation. In the classic passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, we're told that salvation is a helmet. It's a helmet for us. So what does a helmet do for us? It keeps us from getting our dome rocked. It protects our brain. I've taken a few fastballs to the head playing baseball, and I've been very thankful for the invention of the helmet. It's a great thing. 
So salvation, like a helmet, it protects our minds, but instead of fastballs, it keeps us from lies that we're tempted to think and believe. Lies like this. Lies that say, and lies that say this and remain here. Things that say, I'm not good enough. How can I have done that and still be a Christian? What if I fail again? I can't do this. I'm a hypocrite. So here's the thing. Your hope of salvation is not based on anything you have done or who you have been. It's about what Jesus has done, who he is, and what you believe about him. So the helmet of salvation guards us from mentally giving ourselves over to the enemy when there's convincing arguments that tell us otherwise. It keeps us from believing we're hopeless anyways. Why try even following Jesus? We follow Jesus because we've been promised salvation. And it's always been a salvation from God in spite of who we were and what we've done. Why would that change later in our Christian walk? Does God change? No. So when any thought comes up in your mind to say, you are not a Christian, take up the helmet of salvation and remind yourself, on my own, no, I'm not a Christian, but Jesus died in my place, he paid the penalty of my sin, and he has promised to bring me home with him in eternity. So we guard our mind from fears that are right in front of us, doubts right in front of us, by setting our minds on a future that has been promised to us by God. Ian DeGuid reminds us, if attaining heaven depends on our best efforts, it must always remain uncertain. But if heaven is received as a free gift, we can know we have it for sure. Wrestling with doubt of salvation honestly has been one of the more difficult things for me in my life. So I'm kind of a thinker, and when I think about the high calling of God's holiness, and then I think about my own past, or I even think about my life since becoming a Christian, even after being saved, just logically it seems to me there's no way God would accept me. And this is something I wrestle with sometimes. So I convince myself in my head that somehow I'm an exception to God's grace. You know, I could even say it to somebody else, I could even preach it, believe it for you, but not believe it for me. Same message, hard to believe for myself. One of my favorite songs is a song called Embracing Accusation by Shane and Shane. And it's a song that's helped me put the helmet back on to fight the doubts that I wrestle with. I want to read the lyrics for you, and I'm not going to sing them for you, for your own sake, but I'm going to read them to you guys. Here's the song. The father of lies, coming to steal, kill, and destroy, all my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Alleluia, he's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation, embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Alleluia, he's right. Oh, the devil singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse so conveniently he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. So when we think about these lies and these doubts, like the song kind of reminds us, they're not actually necessarily lies. They're not actually unfounded doubts. But for the believer in Jesus, they don't tell you the whole story. We really have done things that are wrong, and we really have offended God. But God has loved us while we were still his enemies. 
That's the whole point of the gospel. You know, we, for each one of us, we really even, we will really die someday. Even in ways we wonder, how could God allow that to happen if he loves us? But he conquered death and he has promised salvation in new bodies with him someday in eternity. We have a hope. So, back to the story for today. Sennacherib's messengers come to Israel and they try to convince them that they were too weak, that their God would abandon them for destruction. He actually even uses the common logic of the day back then to try to convince them of this. So he brings up how Hezekiah had all the altars and all the high places, all these things were destroyed, right? We read about that in a few chapters leading up. So in the ancient mind, here's the math equation for this. This is what Sennacherib is thinking, and this is what the nations of that time would think. More worship in more places with more altars equals a happier God. You do all those things, your God's going to be satisfied, he's going to be happy, right? So Hezekiah is saying to the people, don't you see, even if your God were strong enough to stop me, He's not going to be on your side anyways. You destroyed all of his favorite places. What are you guys thinking? What hope do you guys have? You're not good enough. You failed. Your God has left you. You don't have any chance or hope of salvation. So when we think about that, we also need to realize another thing. The most convincing lies, the most convincing things have convincing logic, and they have little bits of truth in them. And Sennacherib is going for just that when he argues here for the Israelites. So, it was working a little bit too. So if you actually go read the account of this story in the book of 2 Kings, um, there's a few more details in there, and you'll see some of the Israelites were actually pretty shaken up by these messengers and this message that Sennacherib was sending. So, unfortunately for Sennacherib, he didn't know that the God of Israel was different than the gods of all the nations he had destroyed already. So let's finish our passage and let's see what happens. We're looking at verse 20 now. Then Hezekiah, the king, and Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. So Israel saw their hopelessness on their own. That's what we see in this passage. So what did they do? They cried out to God in prayer, and the Lord provided salvation by defeating their enemies. Now I would have liked to know what they prayed at that time, and thankfully, actually, the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, records for us what they prayed. So I'm going to read that for you. Isaiah 37. They prayed, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is what they pray. 
And what do we see in this prayer? Well, we see that Isaiah acknowledges that logically, Sennacherib will destroy them just like the other nations, unless God acts. So what does God do? He sends one, just one angel, it says, and he takes out 185,000 of the warriors of Assyria. Now, Sennacherib goes home with his tail between his legs. He's ashamed to his people, and eventually he's killed by his own sons. That actually happens 20 years later, which is his further proof that even if people don't seem to get their justice right away, God will see to it in the end. So, we actually have record of this event outside of the Bible as well. So the Assyrians kept pretty good records of things. We have some records of that in their annals. And here's what Sennacherib did write down. He didn't write down everything that would bring him shame, because why would they write that down? People back in the day didn't write stuff down. That made them look bad. But he did write this. In the records, it says, 46 of Hezekiah's strong, wild towns and innumerable smaller villages I besieged and conquered. As for Hezekiah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. And then it also goes on to say, in it, Sennacherib also noted, he said this, he said, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. So he didn't take out Jerusalem, but he's trying to still make it sound like he had Hezekiah scared or something. And I think it's interesting that with all his warrior power, he didn't just conquer Jerusalem like all the other villages and cities he had been destroying. Um, and he even said he would destroy Jerusalem, so why didn't he do it? I wonder why. Maybe something happened, like 185,000 of his best guys were slaughtered, and he couldn't do it. I don't know. But that's what the Bible says, so that's what I'm going with here. All right. So what should we learn from Second Chronicles 32 today? What should we take away from this passage? First off, first thing, obeying and honoring God does not mean a cakewalk, but it privileges you to be made more holy. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So God's going to allow you to be further refined in your life, and it's going to be for your good. Yes, he's going to provide for you. Yes, he's going to care for you. Yes, he's going to protect you in many ways. But he will also allow things to come into your life that are going to make you more holy. So learn to trust him even through the difficult things of life. Second, joy in God will satisfy us so other things don't have to. So remember Israel celebrating the Passover. Their joy in God made them go give up their old ways, actually destroy them. When you satisfy yourself with God, so knowing him, learning from him, spending time with him, being filled with his spirit, you won't feel the need to search for other things that are going to leave you empty anyways. Third, put on your helmet. Let salvation and the other promises of God, let those shape your thinking. And with that, I want to ask the question, who are you listening to? And I mean that extremely practically. What information, media, news, websites, podcasts, TV shows, conversations, books, what is influencing your thinking on a day-to-day basis? You know, I know for me, there's certain news sites, there's certain uh, podcasts even that I listen to that sometimes I just have to put them aside because I'm like, this is all that I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about God. So for you, does hope of investing in success shape your thinking? Does constant fantasy of other realities let you escape from the hard things God might be wanting to teach you right now? So take some time and reassess if the stream of information into your life 
is influencing you in ways you're not even aware of. And really look at if any of it encourages you to put your helmet on and be guarded against these things. Fourth, humble yourself. Looking at this story, Sennacherib didn't just put himself as fighting Israel. He put himself as fighting the God of Israel. He made himself out to be more powerful than God. So you might never say it like he did, um, but where do you think you're right about things that God has said you're actually wrong? Are your morals tempted to be above his outdated ones? Are there commands of Jesus you feel you don't really need to obey? Salvation is a free gift, but it's a gift to be used. It's not just a plaque for your wall. Fifth, there is one who saves. We see God sent just one to destroy 185,000 Assyrians. Just one angel said. That's a lot of enemies. If I could count my own sin, I'm sure the number is not too far off. God sent one who took the penalty for each one of our sins. His name is Jesus. He deals with all of our enemies, the father of lies, death, even the enemies of our own creation, our own sin. Put your faith today in the only one who saves. That's Jesus. So those are the points and those are the questions I want you guys to think about. And I just want to wrap this up um, kind of with uh, how chapter 32 of Chronicles ends. So we learn a lot of good from it, but unfortunately, if we keep reading, Hezekiah did not live happily ever after, as the story kind of might imply. So the remainder of Second Chronicles 32 tells us about Hezekiah's pride. It's almost as if he begins to believe that the great deliverance really primarily had to do with his obedience and his faith uh, preparation rather than God's mercy. So he gets sick, he almost dies, but he prays, and God heals him. Um, in his pride, he doesn't give God glory for the healing. Um, he eventually repents of that, but he eventually sets up the kingdom for future failure. He stores up great wealth, great splendor, and he decides to show it off to a young nation called Babylon. He shows everything off to them, and really what he ends up doing is he sets up the next generations to be destroyed and plundered by that very nation, Babylon. So in reading Hezekiah's story, as good as it was, and as much as we can learn from it together, we still find ourselves in the end looking for a perfect king. So with that, the thread is going to keep weaving throughout the Bible, and it's going to be leading us up to that perfect king, which you guys know is Jesus. But you should come back next week to hear more as Dean preaches about that. So why don't you guys pray with me?